Well, this morning, I, I want to continue talking with you about being happy people. So we're, we've been living in this category. We'll probably do a little bit more, and then I'm going to sprinkle it throughout the year from at points because I, I think it's a, it's a critical reality. There's a function of God and who he is and the power of the gospel and the Holy Spirit in us that should make its way out into categories that are real to us, and happiness is one of them. And it's a good barometer, and it's a good thing we're all interested in. I mean, there's lots of things in the Bible that God's interested in that sometimes we're not interested in. But happiness, we're all interested in that one, right? And so let me do this this morning. I'm going to dig into a little bit of a category today. Titled this, uh, Seeing God's Grace Fixes My Self-Qualifying Performance. I think sometimes we're unhappy, and we don't exactly always know why we're unhappy. It's kind of like, uh, kind of like having leaky windows and doors, and you can't quite figure out why you can't cool your house. You know, you run the air conditioner, you run it, you run it. You just kind of walk into certain rooms, and you feel. I had a, we had an older house, first house Gene and I had, and just the windows were just they were thin, they weren't double paned, and the, and all the little caulking leaked, and you just. You'd, in the wintertime, you'd walk in the room and it felt like a breeze was cl- blowing across the room. Well, I think sometimes we, we kind of let unhappiness come into our lives in ways that we're not even aware we're doing it. We're not even aware that there are some things in us that produce in us this sense of self-misery. So I, I want to kind of jump into one of those categories today. <clears throat> Let me start it by asking you this question. You'll see this in this quote in just a moment. Are you an insecure person? Most people don't want to answer that question. Most people don't want to be labeled that. Yeah, yeah, that's me. I'm insecure. Yeah. But my life experience is I've never met a person who's not insecure. They just manifest their insecurities differently. Or they are very confident in some categories. You just need to move them out of those categories and stick them in some other categories. And you'll learn they're just as weird as you are. Right? Insecurity is that sense of lacking confidence and being at peace with yourself in such a way that you don't feel in any given moment that you got to be something that you're not. Right? When you're insecure, you're just kind of always feeling like I'm... I'm having to measure up to something. I'm having to meet somebody's requirement. I, you know, I don't, I don't like to get around so-and-so. Is so-and-so going to be there? You know, family gatherings and there's some family member coming. Why, why does it matter to you whether that person shows up or not? Well, because when they're busy being them, I just don't know what to do with me. Well, that's insecurity. How about you just relax and be you? How about that just be the answer for our existence? Just relax and be you. But some of us have a real problem just relaxing and being us, right? You you might be real comfortable right now being relaxed and being you, but if I just decide to walk out into the audience here and pull you up on this platform and interview you for the next few minutes, I could introduce you real quickly to how insecure you really are, huh? (laughs) Right? Because in that moment, you will not relax and be you. You're going to feel awkward, right? Well, that's that's kind of what self-qualifying performance brings into our life. It's that sense of need that I have to, to qualify myself. I've, I've, I've got to perform somehow in order to qualify before the standards of others. So here, quick outline here. Uh, what is self-qualifying performance and how does it contribute to my unhappiness? And then secondly, we'll look at what is God's grace and how does it fix my self-qualifying performance? All right, so let's start with a, with a definition. When you make up a term, you get to define it. So that's, you know, it's, it's a good thing about making up your own terms. What is self-qualifying performance? Well, I'm going to define it this way. It's the belief that we control the good of our lives and our status before others by our own efforts and performance. Right? The belief that we control the good the good condition, the good future, things are going well, things are going to be good. We control that good, and we control our status before others by our own efforts and performance. 
Now, I don't want to make us completely allergic to the word performance, uh, because in some contexts of your life, performance is, is fine, and, and it's, it's good. Uh, you know, if you're watching the March Madness tournament, uh, you either perform or you go home. I mean, right? I mean, that's just a fact. And so in that sense, competitive sports, uh, that's not a bad thing. It's not like, oh, we should be against all performance. No, no, it's, hey, play well, play hard, or go home. I mean, that's just how it's going to be. Uh, you know, you, you get a certain ACT score. You guys are students and you're worried about taking your ACT. You, you got to perform, right? You, you get too low a score, hey, you know, you got to perform on that. So, you know, prepare, do the best you can in those categories. You, you're going to get a job review. At some point, your boss is going to sit down with you. You can review your, your activity here. You know, don't pull this message out on them and say, and hey, you know, God has rescued me from self-qualifying performance. Hey, you got to perform. You got a job. Uh, you got to do a good job on that. Where self-qualifying performance becomes an enormous problem is first and foremost in our relationship with God. And I think most of us have a problem in this category that we may or may not be in touch with. But, but the tendency for us to relate to God out of a sense of my efforts and performance have something to do with how God feels toward me how he will operate toward me. What kind of secure future and good is awaiting? What kind of sense of confidence do I have that God is with me, for me, active, moving on my behalf if I'm having a good day, bad day, good season or bad season? That's a, that's a major problem. But I, I want to spill that problem into us as a church as well. I think it becomes a major problem. And I'm glad Peter brought up some of the things that he did for our communion time. I think this becomes a major problem when it spills into the church, a community that got created by the grace of God that can very easily lose sight of the grace of God. And then we're with one another in a measuring up sort of a way. Performance in, in various categories is featured, and it can be featured in us relating with each other. And, and that spoils the atmosphere that God intended for his church to have. So I want to pay attention to that in those categories. But let me tweak this out a little bit, borrowing a couple of thoughts from Tim Keller's book, Center Church. He talks about religion that's based in performance. Right? And that's easy to do. Listen to this thought from Richard Lovelace quoted in his book. He says, Only a fraction of the present body of professing Christians are solidly appropriating the justifying work of Christ in their lives, right? You know what that, that means, the justifying work of Christ, right? To, to be justified before God is to be made acceptable and right with him. Whatever qualifying needed to take place, it, is, it has taken place. It has been accomplished. So there's not like a partial, you know, you're not like 90% there, you're most of the way there, because if there's the slightest bit out of 100%, if there's a 1% ownership that you have for performing, then you might as well own 99% of it. Because the mere fact that you got to perform in order for God to say you're okay is the fly in the ointment. And so if you just got a little bit of that, you got a big problem on your hands. Justification for a Christian comes 100% completely because of something you didn't do. Something that was done on your behalf completely and satisfactorily by another. Well, Richard Lovelace says only a fraction are appropriating that truth in their lives. He says in their day-to-day existence, they rely on their sanctification for justification. Right? What does he mean by that? He says they're drawing their assurance of acceptance with God from their sincerity their past experience of conversion, their recent religious performance, or the relative infrequency of their conscious, willful disobedience. Christians who are no longer sure that God loves and accepts them in Jesus, apart from their present spiritual achievements, are subconsciously radically insecure persons. Their insecurity shows itself in pride, a fierce defensive assertion of their own righteousness and defensive criticism of others. All right, so here's, here's, the, here's the issue. At some point as a Christian, you can confuse 
qualifying before God. You can confuse it. How do you get qualified before God? Now, now major problem, and Evan kind of hinted at it a little bit in some of this movie content. Major problem. For me to qualify before God, I can either adjust God or I can adjust me. How I many of you know that we live in a culture who's adjusting God? Making a God into a God who has no standards. Making a God whose love has made him blind to righteousness. He's so loving that he's blind to anything being wrong in his presence. Okay, that's not the biblical God. You cannot adjust God that way. But if we get confused about qualifying, well, then how do, how do we qualify? Well, the next thing to do is to try to adjust us. And we just need an upgrade. We need to improve. We need to do better. We need to perform. I've got, I've got to increase in the category of how right I am. And I'm going to have to work on that really, really hard. All right, well, work all you want. You're never going to arrive. You will always be working and still questioning. You'll always be working and feeling like you fall short. You will become insecure in your relationship with God. You won't ever have this sense of confidence that I'm standing on holy ground. I'm in the family of God. I belong to God. I'm called by his name. God is favorably disposed toward me right now at this moment. As a matter of fact, he has motivated for my good as much right now as he ever will be. Ever. How do you say that? Because I could have been a jerk yesterday. I could be on a string of being a jerk for the last month. Well, because my qualifying is not based in my performance. But the second it does become based in my performance. And by the way, this this translates into our human relationships as well. The second it does become based in my performance, I will become insecure. Insecure sounds like a kind of a soft, non-threatening word. Can I just tell you, if you get around insecure people and you are acting on your own insecurities, you are not an easy person to be around. You are a very, very difficult human being to relate to. It's a nice-sounding word. It's not like jerk, right? Obnoxious, fool. I'm just insecure. Uh, yeah, but in your insecurity, I mean, Peter had an interesting list a little while ago of, of how we interrogate one another, manipulate one another. So, you know, where does all that stuff come from? Can I just tell you, it, it's bred out of insecurity. It's bred out of the sense that I don't know that I measure up. I'm going to make sure you certainly don't. I'm going to pull you down so at least I can feel a little bit better about me. Right, Because I'm in the game to make me look and feel better. And, and me looking and feeling better is all about my performance. So I, I got to adjust you, adjust me to accomplish that. Right? Now here's an interesting way in which this plays out. Observation from Keller's book. person who's living this way says, When I'm criticized, I am furious or devastated. Because it is essential for me to think of myself as a good person. Threats to that self-image must be destroyed at all costs. All right. You don't realize that that sometimes you're bringing a disagreement to somebody. You're bringing a sense of criticism to them. And you get one of two responses. You get somebody whose claws come out and they rise up and they get loud and they're in your face because you're, you're doing battle on them and they're ready to fight. Because they're in this sentence here. They are furious. Why are they so furious? Because you're lowering me. I'm in the game to increase. And you're lowering me. So I'm furious. And then you got the other person. You bring criticism to them. And it just kind of, they cave in on themselves. They, they oh, I can't believe you would feel that way. Oh, you know, I just, I, you know, after all I've done, I, I can't believe that you would say that about me. And so they don't get furious and launch out at you. They cave in and, and want you to feel sorry for them. Well, you know, this is all after the same stuff. How about just an honest ability to say, hey, I don't do that well, do I? Uh, okay, what do, you, what do you see? What do you think? And I'm not undone by that. Well, I'm undone by it because I'm insecure. And my performance is what rescues me from my insecurity. So if you bring a criticism to me and I'm a performer, that's a problem. And then my personality either goes, poor pitiful me, or I'm going to take your head off. Right? And this is, this is what we live in. He says, my self-view swings between two poles. If when I am living up to my standards, I feel confident. 
But then I'm prone to be proud and unsympathetic to people who fail, right? I'm pulling it off. Why aren't you pulling it off? I'm consistent. Why aren't you consistent? I'm keeping my weight under control. Why aren't you? I've lost weight. Why haven't you? I'm not late for things. Why aren't you? Right? I've got a standard. And usually we we try to create standards that we can achieve in these categories. And then all of a sudden we just kind of look on others like, I mean, you got some categories where other people fall short and it just really irritates the tar out of you. Can't believe people. What tends to be something you are, I feel good about how I do in that category and I can't believe you don't. This is what performance breeds in us. We're unsympathetic toward them when that happens. If and when I'm not living up to my standards, I feel humble but not confident. I feel like a failure. My identity and self-worth are based mainly on how hard I work or how moral I am. So I must look down on those I perceive as lazy or immoral. I disdain and feel superior to others. Since I look to my pedigree or performance for my spiritual acceptability, my heart manufactures idols, talents, moral record, personal discipline, social status, etc. They are my main hope, meaning happiness, security, and significance, whatever I say I believe about God. You feel good about yourself when you've got those categories in a healthy place. When you've performed well in the categories of idolatry, I feel good about my life. I have a sense of confidence about the future and how things are going and who I am. Regardless of whether you say you're a Christian or not. It's not where a Christian gets his confidence. A Christian gets his confidence from the achievements of someone else besides himself. This is where grace needs to be more clearly revealed to us. I wrote this in your outline. Self-qualifying or various expressions of performing can be an ocean of unhappiness for us. And believe it or not, it can thrive in a church. Self-qualifying performance loves settings like this. Settings where people have values, settings where people have goals, settings where things are called right and wrong, settings where people gather together. It it gives us an opportunity to compare. It gives us an opportunity to compete. It gives us an opportunity to measure others for the sake of seeing how I measure up. This kind of an issue in us, it loves this setting. And so we need to be very wise and careful about it. Remember this quote I used it several weeks ago from John Bloom about being aware of, being aware of mirrors. It says, fallen proud hearts turn just about everything into a mirror. Whether we're gazing at magazines or malls or mutual funds or someone else's immaculate lawn, impressive children, beautiful homes, successful business or growing church, we see ourselves, right, in comparison. just want to know how we measure up. How much does your house cost? How long have you been working at that? How are you doing in this category? Trying to measure me by measuring you. We see ourselves wanting. And as we look into these mirrors, seductive messages are whispered into our heart. Fix that, right? Perform. Fix that. And you will be happy. Better yourself and others' admiration, acceptance, respect, success, or attraction will save you. Or improve yourself and you will please or at least appease your God, right? This is the land of self-qualifying performance. Warning, warning to the church. Listen carefully what I'm going to say here. I'm going to try and say it carefully. And if you misunderstand me, do me the justice of coming and asking me, what exactly did you mean when you said that? Because I don't know if I can say it exactly the way it needs to be said, right? But I'm writing out this way, misuse, 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 not let's do away with standards, not let's just never have any convictions. Misuse of standards and measuring equipment is a recipe for misery and for losing the joy of the gospel. Here's Here's what I wanted to do this morning. I just spared the administrative staff the pain of doing this. I wanted the administrative staff to create little rulers in multiple colors and disperse them throughout the meeting 
today so that you'd have right now in your possession a blue ruler or a green ruler or a red ruler or an orange ruler, etc. Because of this, when you read the Bible, when you hear preaching that bumps into our lives, convictions come out of that. So things get labeled a certain way, right? Haven't talked about movies today. So movies get a little bit of a label here. Good, bad, you should, you shouldn't, all right? And so now we gather together as a community. And if we're not careful, we begin to be a a community that features rulers. We've got a set of rulers in our back pocket. Now, there's a bunch of colors you don't care for, personally. You just don't care for them. So you leave alone, you know, chartreuse and pale this and that. You don't even have that in your back. You've got bold red and black orange. That's that's your rulers. And so people get into your radar and you pull out your ruler and measure them. Measure this one, right? So you got, got in this, in this church, we're, we're, we're an active church. We've got a lot of opportunities for you to be involved. We've got, you got the multitasking ruler that you can be measured by. You come to this church and not only are you here on Sunday mornings and are you in a small group and do you help with Alpha and do you, you know, do do you do this? And so you can be a part of this church and feel measured. As a matter of fact, maybe you do. Maybe you've been here and you felt like, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm not involved in some of those things. And that's always talked about and highlighted. And, I, you know, I kind of feel measured by people. Like, I need to perform a little better in that category. Uh, we talk a lot about the Bible and reading and prayer. So you a spiritual disciplines ruler, you know. So you can kind of be measuring other people's spiritual disciplines. How, how are you doing reading the Bible? How are you doing spending time with God? What's your devotion life like? And so you pull that ruler out. You got the, the hair and makeup ruler. You do. I'm just sorry. Some of you guys, you got a hair and makeup ruler. And as soon as you encounter somebody, you pull out the hair and makeup ruler. And you want to know, you know, what's that person doing in the style category? Uh, you know, some people are like, uh, why don't you get some style? And some of you, <laughs> some of you are like, uh, you know, self-idolatry. You're paying too much attention to yourself. But you kind of got this ruler thing going on. You know, you're not dressed modestly enough. You wear too much makeup. You're trying to draw attention to yourself. And then this is just pumping into the setting of who we are. Right, you have the uh, family behavior rulers, right? So you know if you're, you're taught about things that are good and biblical about husbands that lead, and so you know you took that and you made it in a ruler. You meet somebody, and it's like yeah, that guy really doesn't seem to doesn't lead real well. He's not out there enough. He's a little too quiet. His wife runs all over him. Which, by the way, I'm measuring her too. She's she's not submitted. She speaks too much. Uh, you know, quiet and submissive. I think I heard that somewhere. Here's a ruler. Quiet and submissive. No, she's not. You ever see so and so? No. Yeah. And they're, the behavior of their children. So you measure your children. And hey, this is really fun for parents when when you're being measured by them measuring your kids, right? And they're looking at you and going, "Let's see how you're doing." Huh. Yeah. That kid jumps off the chair one more time. <laughs> Uh, total out of control child right there. And I know I'm measuring him, but I'm really measuring you. And so we just sort of install all this stuff in the life of the church. And, and, and the church becomes a bunch of people with rulers. And we feel measured. And guess it inspires us to live a self-qualifying performance-based life. Inspires us to do it. Because I feel measured. Listen, here's the sad, realistic danger. And and let me just tell you, I mean, I could could have a list here. And quite honestly, I've got convictions in every one of those categories. And it's not wrong for me to have convictions in every one of those categories. Matter of fact, if you pick the Bible up and read it for five minutes, you'll develop some form of an opinion about everything I just listed. And you should. If you didn't, then you didn't really read the Bible. But those issues are secondary to something else. When we came in here, and Peter highlighted that song earlier, we've come together to proclaim how great you are. That rules over everything we do. We've come together for the sake of the gospel. Not for the sake of measuring one another in all these crazy categories. Not to create an environment where everybody feels like they got to perform in some kind of a category. Now, Keith, does that mean no one should care about these areas? No, I'm not saying that at all. I'm just saying that it's a dangerous place for us to create an environment that feels like it's more concerned with the rulers 
than it is with just celebrating what's been done on our behalf that none of us perform to get accomplished. That's the thing we gather around. The reason I have a relationship with you is not because you and I are like-minded in our parenting. It's not because you finally attended the uh, Sunday morning prayer meeting, which eh, wouldn't be likely that I like hardly any of you then, because there's only 12 there this morning, by the way. But, you know, the basis, and hey, I put a high value on, you know, to me, hey, you want to know where my convictions are? If you're not living a prayer life, I don't see how you can be living a Christian life. So if you've got no prayer going on, this, I've got a strong opinion in this category. So you want to get around me, I'll rub you the wrong way pretty quick. So if you haven't figured out how to turn your life upside down, read a gazillion books on prayer, invade your personal life with prayer space, and then join with others corporately, I don't have a high opinion of that. But... The basis for you and I being in relationship is not you performing in that category. The basis for our relationship is you and I get to stare together at what's been done on our behalf by the person of Jesus Christ. That's why we have a relationship together. That's why this church has fellowship. Now listen, I'm not trying to unglue all of our convictions here. Because I'm going to preach next, well I won't preach next week, but I'll preach in two weeks. And I'm going to be back messing with some of this stuff. I just want to be careful that we're not hearing the elevation of these rulers above what it is that's most important. And what's most important actually rescues us from performance-based self-qualifying. So you've got to be really careful. We can all say we believe in the grace of God and pull rulers out on each other left and right. You know, I'm saying, I think you, you, your doctrine's not pure enough. That doesn't sound reformed. Uh, you, you got too much Catholicism in you, right? I mean, we just, we just got rulers everywhere. Those aren't unimportant things. They're just not as important of what we should be featuring as we're together fellowshipping and celebrating the grace of God revealed in the gospel. All right, so quick warning for us in that category. Now, here's a complicated fact of life. You got a little fact of life box in your uh, outline there? Okay, what I just said is, is easier to say than it is to pull off. Here's why. Fact. There are things to grow in as a Christian. Growth means measurable movement from one place to another. If you are saved, if the Spirit operates in you, if truth is a transforming presence, then this is a reality in your life. You, you have been put on an escalator of God's work, and you will make progress, and you will grow, and you will change. And legitimately, if that's not happening, then you should question whether you ever were set on the escalator. Because you're not moving. All right, so growth is measurable. All right, so it's tempting. Oh, well, Keith, if growth is measurable, I can, I can help with that. I've got rulers. <laughs> I can help everybody know where they are along the way. <laughs> Keep them in your pocket, please. Uh, fact, we are called to relate to others during this season of sanctification. We're being conformed to the image of Christ and we're called to relate to others. Therefore, our growth or lack of growth will be visible to others. And it gets a little complicated now, doesn't it? So now I get to relate to you and you get to see where it is that I'm not moving along and I get to see where you're not moving along. And we expect growth, so this, this can be a little challenging to manage, can't it? Right? This is why we've got to be wise and careful. Fact. If a church features rulers more than it features the gospel of God's grace, there will be grounds for much unhappiness. The Bible speaks into these categories. It just didn't mean for us to turn them into rulers that we hoist up to people to get them to perform better so that they can feel better about how we feel about them. I don't want to be a part of that environment. I'm sorry, I don't. And I don't want us to create that kind of environment where people feel that way toward us, toward us who live in a grace-based relationship with God that never felt that way in our lives, right? So let's, let me learn something here from John the Baptist. Turn to John chapter 3. And I picked John the Baptist because I love John the Baptist's statement that he says about himself. This, this could be just a good bumper sticker not, to, not something to try and achieve, but something to just experience as real. 
At some point, John the Baptist turns to his disciples. He turns to his disciples in an interesting moment. He turns to them while his disciples are leaving him. They're leaving him for someone else. This significant player in, on the pages of the Bible has got disciples that are saying, hey, we're, we're in this for an upgrade, John. It's been nice, but there's a better deal here. They're moving away from him. And he's fine with it. He's absolutely fine. He's not threatened. He's not insecure. He's not, he's not furious responding to them. He's not saying, well, is this something I said? Was this something I did? He's perfectly at peace. He's confident. And he says, hey, this is how it works. He must increase. I must decrease. How many of you just would be fine with decreasing? You decreasing. In all kinds of categories. Are you, you okay with that? Because right, it's, I think I'll put this in your outline. This statement is counterintuitive. Countercultural. Unnatural. And it is a non-default setting response for self-qualifying performers. If I'm out to perform in order to, to reach something, I'm not into decreasing. My whole mode is to increase. I, I want to increase somehow. I want to increase in your eyes. And then when I translate that, not just into my, you know, growing up, I want to increase my parents' eyes. And, uh, when I get into the church, and the church is a representative of, of something about God, and all of a sudden there's these measuring rods that I've got to measure up to them. And I want to qualify before them. Now I want to increase in the eyes of people in the church. I want to use the Christian buzzwords. I want to tell stories like everybody else told. I, I, I want to be impressive to fellow Christians in categories that seem to matter to them. Listen, you can't help but then translate that to God. You feel that way toward God as well. You've got to self-qualify. You've got to perform for God. But yet here's a man who says, no, I, decreasing is fine. It's not a problem. I, I, I want to live in this, but I want to highlight the fact this is an interesting thing for this man of all men to be saying. Because this guy's unique. This, he, he's got game. This guy's got a resume. Right? Most of us can't say any of this. Right? Here's a quick little rundown. Who is John the Baptist that it's a big deal for him to say, no problem for me to step down? I'm confident. I'm at peace with that. Well, here's who he is. Right, Luke chapter 1. I'll just fly through this real quickly. This is the announcement of his birth. I'm just wondering if anybody in here has got something like this happened in your life. Please let me know. But the angel said to him, to his father, right? So an angel, a messenger from heaven comes to announce to the family about the birth of John the Baptist. That's a little special, huh? Don't be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son and you shall call his name John. And you will have joy and gladness and many will rejoice at his birth. He's going to be big. For he will be great before the Lord. And he must not drink wine or strong drink. In other words, like, hey, you guys, pay attention to his life and how he lives. Because this dude's going to be somebody. He will be filled with the Holy Spirit, even from his mother's womb. That's a unique piece on your resume. Anybody got that on their resume? He will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord. And he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah. Wow. This is like, you know, saying your, your son's going to be an incredible basketball player in the spirit and power of Michael Jordan. I mean, this is big in Israel. So you just don't have any son on your hands. You've got, you've got a guy like nobody else who's ever been born. Matthew chapter 3, verse 1. In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea. Then Jerusalem and all Judea and all the region about the Jordan were going out to him. This guy can draw a crowd. He's a big deal. <clears throat> Matthew 14. Remember the day that uh, um, Herod's wife's daughter dances before Herod, pleases him? And he says, I'll give you anything. I will give you anything. What would you ask for? Anything, really? <clears throat> I don't know, half of everything you own? I don't know. What does she ask for? Give me the head of John the Baptist on a platter. Really? Are you kidding me? Is this guy a celebrity or what? <clears throat> He's a celebrity who is so powerfully able to offend 
You know, I could have the whole kingdom since you're offering it to me. I just want his head. That's all. This guy is somebody. Matthew chapter 16. Who do people say that the Son of Man is? Jesus answers disciples that. And they they said, some say John the Baptist. (laughs) Jesus, you're so impressive. Some people think you're John the Baptist. And then they put John the Baptist in the category with Elijah and Jeremiah and, and, and the prophets. And then Jesus says one of the most profound statements ever said about John the Baptist. He says, of women born who have arisen, no one is greater than John the Baptist. No one is greater than John the Baptist. There was ever a moment for somebody to feel like I'm, I'm a little bit significant. Decreasing is a problem. I should be increasing. This guy is the guy. Now, before you say, well, yeah, yeah, that's easy to pull off. Can you remember just a couple of weeks ago, we talked about another created being that God made great. Remember him? His name was Satan. And God made him great. And God made him beautiful and amazing and a splendor and unique, just like John the Baptist was. Except his cry was, I must increase and he must decrease. Do you remember the difference here? Here's John the Baptist. Something's at work in him that says, it's cool, I'm I'm to decrease. He is to be the seen as the great one. Tension needs to go to him. He's so releasing of this. What is it that accomplishes that in this man? Well, when we, when we get introduced to John, right? You're in John chapter 1 there with me. Listen, listen to what's real. Listen to what's on the tip of John the Baptist's tongue, if you will. When he comes to play his role of introducing us to Christ. Right? He's the sign bearer. He's the one pointing to Christ. He's coming before him. Prepare the way. Verse 6. <clears throat> there was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness, to bear witness about the light, that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. The true light, which enlightens everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. This is the one to whom John is the witness. The word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him and cried out, This Was he of whom I said, he who comes after me ranks before me because he was before me. And from his fullness, we have all received grace upon grace. This this man, John the Baptist, was looking to point to one whose glory was going to manifest the invisible God. And here's what gets featured. Grace upon grace. Truth gets mentioned here as well. Don't don't jettison truth here. Don't do that. But grace gets featured here. And when John the Baptist stands before an audience and introduces Jesus in in verse 29, it says the next day he he saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world world. Who who is John aware of? Remember, we're trying to to rescue and fix our unhappiness by seeing something, right? Remember, that's what we're doing this series for. We're trying to see something in God that rescues us from this misery of self-qualifying performance, the need for me to increase. Well, what rescued him from it? Well, look at what he saw. He saw the glory of the hidden God made known in the flesh, grace and truth. And from him we have received grace upon grace. He is the Lamb of God who does the most gracious thing in the history of humanity. 
He takes away our sin. This, this is the knowledge that rescues this man. He knows something of God that releases him from this self-performance. I've got to be, I've got to achieve. No, John, you don't. Well, why don't you? Because I've seen grace. I've seen grace. I don't need to perform. I don't need to achieve. All right, the greatest thing that is an obstacle for us as people is sin stands in the way of our awareness of that. And this one came to take away sin. The lamb, the only one who could ever take away sin. Right? You want to hear, hear this in the context of performance? This is an interesting passage to consider. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 11 says, Every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. Now, if you don't memorize a passage, if you memorize that one, it could save you a lot of trouble. Because what that passage lets us know is that there is nothing you can do, nothing you can do to take away sins. Nothing. You can't have a better day tomorrow. You can't be more sorry for your sins. You can't shed tears. You can't pay back. There's nothing you can do to take away sins. You are powerless. No human being has the ability to take sins away. But boy, aren't some of us trying to do that? Trying to overcome our past, holding ourselves at a distance from God, insecure in our relating to God, because our explanation for that is, well, you don't know what I've done. You don't know where I've been. You don't know what I was like. How are you going to fix that? Because the only thing that does fix it, you're ignoring right now. So that means you're going to do what to fix that? There's nothing you can do to take your sins away. These priests every day, every day, every day. I don't, you know, this wasn't a cartoon, but you know, I don't know. Sun goes down. They're done with their duty for the day. They come back next morning, get up early. Priest walks right back in and goes, it's still there. Sin is still there. Offer another offering. Go through all the things that God had created. Offer, offer, offer. Walk away. Go to bed. Get up the next day. It's still there. Right? Nothing that priest could do could take sins away. This is why John the Baptist gazes upon him coming and says, Oh, behold, the Lamb of God who finally takes it away. It's over. Right there. He's the only one who can ever take our sins away. And here he is. John knew that. John saw that. John was affected by that. Verse 12 in Hebrews 10 says, But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. That's a fun verse, isn't it? Wait. He's perfected for all time those who are being changed. All right, now this, this, this is why you have to use your rulers very carefully. Because when you break that ruler out as a means of qualifying, you violate that passage. But the passage teaches that you are in the process of changing and growing. So, you know, you could break the ruler out and say, hey, yeah, three inches last year, but four inches this year. That's encouraging. Okay, well, yeah, because you are in the process of changing. So the Bible fully recognizes that you can be completely okay with God, justified, accepted, on good terms. God is favorable toward you. He will never be any more favorable toward you than he is right now. And you still got room to grow. You still do stuff wrong. You still screw up. That's what that verse is saying. Grace qualifies. Don't, don't, don't put effort in the wrong category. I want to change. I want to grow. I want to be like Christ. I want to be conformed to his image. All those things are true. 
but one further step in that direction will not qualify me any more than I am qualified right now. And I, I got to be at peace with that. And when we come together as a bunch of people, we, we need to be able to celebrate that more than we point out the fact that, hey, you're kind of moving kind of slow there, aren't you, buddy? I measured you last week, and you still don't look like you moved. In fact, you look like you took a step back. Huh. Get to work on that. We say that enough times to each other, we start featuring self-qualifying. And therefore, we live in a performance rather than a celebration of what God has done. All right, turn with me. I'm going to finish with this passage. Ephesians chapter 2. All right, remember, here's, here's the remedy to the, our self-performing misery. It is to gaze upon grace. John the Baptist was able to say, I I must decrease. Because he saw grace. You and I need to see grace. Now what I'm doing today is sort of like taking you to the foot of Mount Everest and and introducing you to a little rock and saying, look, Mount Everest, look. That's about what I'm doing with grace. Look, grace, look. You haven't looked at much. If you think you've looked at something, you haven't looked at much because I've not said much. And if you don't do any further looking than what you heard today, you won't escape self-qualifying performance at all. Because it's in us. And it's around us. And somebody's going to pull out their ruler on you within one week. And you're going to feel like you've got to perform for them. You're going to have to gaze. You're going to have to get around God, stare at this until it comes into living color, high definition, and see it. For this, I've said this before. This is a worthless series if all you do is live in it when you're in here. Because this, this isn't gay. I'm just sort of pointing you north. I'm just, hey, there's north. If you travel far enough north, it gets snowy and there's incredible pictures of ice and stuff. You've got to travel that direction. You want to see grace? You've got to look at grace. You've got to pick this up. Wait on God. Let him open your eyes. Let grace become wow to you. You can't just hear me say, hey, grace is really wow. You have to see it. All right, so look, quick, quick glance here. Maybe it's a good passage for you to go live in. Ephesians chapter 2. Right, when a lot of us memorize verse 8 and 9. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. This is not because of your performance. It's not because you qualified. It's not because of all your effort and your determination. How much more sincere you are than somebody else. It's not because of you. Not your own doing. It is the gift of God. Not as a result of work so that no one may boast. So if the the biggest, most important thing that's ever happened in our lives came to us by grace, why do I turn around and live my life after that with self-qualifying performance being the thing that rules how I feel about my life? Right? Here, stare at grace with me for a second. Just back up a little bit. These are the verses that we don't get in context sometimes. This, this is rich. This is grace. Verse 1 in chapter 2 is explaining grace to you. You were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world. Following, volunteering, eagerly going after the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. Among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Okay, that's us. Anybody impressed with the performance going on in that group? Anybody seeing God is saying, hey, now there's a group that qualifies for me to be for them. I'm jumping into the midst of those guys right there. They got it going on. Nobody's got it going on here. We, we are children of wrath. We have drawn from God what we deserve, his opposition, his judgment, his response to our sin. Verse 4. But God, being rich, these are big words, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead, in our trespasses, 
made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. By grace, you have been saved. Listen, these words, this way, you've got to hang out in these verses here. Because there's two words here. There's the word rich and the word great that get used right here. Uh, they, 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 they're flood language. They're abounding, overwhelming language. It's pushy language. It's blitzkrieg language. It's conquering language. That's what grace does. Grace is, is a nice sounding word. Grace is as hostile of a word you're ever going to come across. Grace is the most ambitious thing you're going to find on the pages of Scripture. It's a conqueror. It's an army that overthrows. I mean, look, who the, look who's in the first set of verses here. When you read about our condition, we get conquered by the grace of God because we weren't interested. We're walking in a different direction. We love other things, and we're in allegiance with God's enemy, the devil. That's what we're like when grace comes and finds us. It's like a flood that we can't outrun. It overwhelms us. That's what grace has done in our lives. And, and then you keep reading here, and it only gets richer. Verse six, verse 7. So that, why'd you do that, God? Well, so that in the coming ages, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace. God, why did you flood us, overwhelm us, run us down, save us when we weren't interested, didn't want it? Why did you do that? Well, so that in the ages to come, I could keep doing it. That's why I did it. That's what that says. Did you read that with me? It's almost as though God installed a pipeline so that for the ages to come, he could could continue just to abound his love. The riches of his grace, it's the word from which we get plethora. An abundance, an overflow. It's like... God has this overflowing grace in him that's not based on us. It's in him. And it's like he he plugged the pipeline into him and into us. And he said, for ages to come, this is what it's going to be like. I'm going to overwhelm you with my grace. Let me me conclude with taking this back to where we started. When when I understand, and Eric, you can go ahead and come. When I, I understand that there is, there is a being, he is God, and he is my father. And he is more ambitious for my good than I am for my good. You ever think about God that way? When I get a sense that God is more ambitious for my good than I am for my good. And I, I'm, I'm pretty ambitious. But God is even more than that. Well, I can kind of relax a little bit, can't I? Kind of take my hands off of this agenda of mine that says, I must increase, I must increase. What do you think of me? How am I doing? How am I measuring? I, let me perform. Let me increase. Let me do better. Let me do better before you, because I think if I'm doing better before you, and certainly the body of Christ, I'm doing better before God. So, you know, this whole performance thing. But when I find out that grace isn't looking for performance, Grace doesn't shop for performance. Grace flows out of God abundantly, aggressively, and it comes after me. I I don't have to increase anymore. See, if I stare at grace long enough, it it fixes me. It fixes my self-qualifying performance. I can can relax and, and just be me. Don't be afraid of don't be afraid of what I just said. Some people are like, oh man, I just relax and just be me. Well, you know, if you're not saved, don't relax and just be you. You're going to turn obnoxious. It's just how sin operates in all of us. But if if you're saved by the grace of God and the power of the Holy Spirit lives in you, that you don't you don't need to perform to get grace to be grace. Grace will be grace. Take the pressure off of you. Most people perform much better when the pressure's off. Right? I, can, I, can make, I can make a dozen free throws in my front yard like that. Stick me in an NBA game, you know, two seconds left, winning shot. I, I don't even think I'd hit the goal, right? Pressure, pressure. Hey, well, just, how about you just relax a little bit? How about relax, Christian, and realize the grace of God's coming after you? 
It's coming after you on your good days. It's coming after you on your bad days. It's interested in your increase. It'll take care of that. It knows what categories to make you who you're supposed to be. God will get you there. God will be in you, a husband, a wife, a son or a daughter, a servant in the kingdom of God. Grace is interested in those categories, and grace is aggressive. You can get out of the business of managing your own increase. Get out of the business of performing for others, for God. So listen, this this needs to be something that we just get around. We just listen to it, and we let God show us something about himself. And we beheld his glory, full of grace. And from his fullness, we have all received grace upon grace upon grace. Let's stand up together. Let the Holy Spirit take you back into that first question for a moment. Are you an insecure person? You see maybe a little bit more clearly why that insecurity exists. Why life is filled with comparing to others. Why it's filled with criticism of others, competing with others. Why your confidence before God wanes and flows. Why maybe there's anger in your relationship with God. It's It's a frustrating thing for a Christian to live on a performance treadmill where you run and run and run and run and run and you don't feel like you've increased. Because you haven't. (laughs) Because you don't have the ability to increase before God. Increase is a gift. It's given to you by Christ. So listen, I know in, in our own way, everybody in this room is insecure. Some people are loud, obnoxious, and insecure, and you come into a room and everybody knows you're there. But, you know, you talk to that person, you scratch the surface, and they'll tell you, well, that's just my way. Your way of what? My way of overcoming the fact that I feel so awkward. And there's a quiet person who never says anything. Listen, all of us got issues. Why don't we just invite God to help us today? Can you do that? Bow bow your head. You, You and God have a little conversation here. Invite him. Lord, would you see what performance is doing in me? Lord, you see when I'm motivated to perform for the wrong reasons to accomplish the wrong things. Lord, you see what it's doing in me. Lord, today, Lord, would you make real to me? Would you give me eyes to see grace in a way that maybe I've just glanced at it? I haven't gazed, I've just glanced. Lord, I want to be like John the Baptist saw something of you. He saw the one who finally would deal with sin, the only one who ever could. He saw the one who was worthy and he got out of the worthiness business. He had no problem with people walking away from him. He had no problem with not increasing. Oh, Lord, what liberation. Lord, what joy and happiness awaits those who can be liberated from themselves. Lord, I want to get in that line. Lord, I want to gaze upon grace in such a greater way that you rescue me from my own misery. Rescue me from me, God. Rescue me from me being in the business of me. And Lord, I pray for us as a church, Lord. Lord, when we raise the herald call of the gospel, we're calling people to check out this God, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, the God who qualifies the unqualifiable. The God who gives graciously to those who don't ever deserve, ever deserve. And Lord, we invite them into this community. Lord, would you teach us how not to break out our rulers on one another? 
We don't want this to be an environment where everybody's saved by grace, but performing and getting on a treadmill and working hard. God, make us a church that lives in grace, knows grace, and celebrates grace. Grace unmeasured, vast and free that knew me from